I think I'm unmuted. I'm Don Landis. I'm an alcoholic. If you can hear me, someone give me a thumbs up. Wonderful. We're connecting. Uh, thank you, PJ. And thank you, PAX, for the kind invitation to come and participate this evening in Britain and, and this afternoon where I'm at. I'm in Bellingham, Washington, about 100 miles north of Seattle, 20 miles south of the Canadian border, uh, America's first defense against Canada, I suppose. And uh, I want to tell you, first of all, the most important thing, which is I'm sober and I have a sobriety date. I think that's important when you talk in AA. Uh, I was got sober September 16th, 1991. So I'm at the 29 year mark. And uh, I have a home group. It's the SOS men's group. We meet on Monday and Wednesday nights at seven o'clock at St. James Church on 14th Street in the Fairhaven District of Bellingham. And I say that uh, so you know where we're at. And uh, you don't need to call me. You don't need to make an appointment. Uh, you just need to show up and we will be there and we will cordially welcome you and get you a cup of coffee and uh, show you where the literature is and hopefully show you the kind of Alcoholics Anonymous that I am so fond of, which is friendly, welcoming and enthusiastic. I think that one of the misconceptions I had about sobriety all those years before I came to AA is, oh my God, it's gonna be so boring how in the heck do you get through life sober? What would be the point of that? And I'm here to report gratefully that I was wrong about that as well as a hundred other things in my sobriety that have enabled me to say that the most excitement I've ever had in my life has been during this 29 period that I've been sober. I've been more places, done more things, met more interesting people. And for God's sakes, I've witnessed some of the strangest most enchanting things I've ever seen in Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. I, I can't imagine my life without the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, you are my people. You're wildly entertaining and strange in the ways that I am strange. You see the things I see and you laugh at the things I laugh at. And the rest of the world doesn't, trust me. And uh, <laughs> I, I'm at my best when I'm with you. And uh, as I said, I'm an alcoholic and uh, I'd like to think I know a little bit about what that means today, hopefully after being here for so long, but I certainly didn't when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I was quick to joke and admit I was an alcoholic sitting on the wet end of a bar. Yeah, I'm an alcoholic, so are you, let's have another drink. And it was very funny, but I really didn't understand what had me in its grip. I didn't understand how deep the talons uh, really had me in their grasp. Uh, I think one of the shocking things about alcoholism, we, we talk about a lot of different ways that it kills alcoholics, but what we don't talk about, and it's probably the chief factor that aids in our demise, it's a simple case of underestimation. We underestimate what we're up against. We decide how much trouble we're in. We decide what we need to do about it. And we decide when we're safe. And I have watched people for all of my sobriety make a wonderful beginning in Alcoholics Anonymous only to return to the same monster, the same mechanism, the same grinder that chewed them up and spit them out on the shores of AA. And you wonder, why would you go back to that? And I understand. But isn't it really just a simple case of underestimation? So I don't want to be one of those guys. I don't want to underestimate what I have. I will have this the rest of my life, one day at a time. It has to be treated. 
So when I have an opportunity to, you know, participate in anything in Alcoholics Anonymous, whether it be something like this or taking a commitment of my home group and pushing a broom or any of the other service work I've been honored and privileged to do over the years, I will say yes and figure out the rest later. Uh, it has served me very well. Uh, you know, it's funny, I do sales for a living and basically all sales is, is negotiation, right? It's one negotiation after another. And I negotiate, as we all do, uh, many, many things in my life. I mean, I negotiate what I'm going to eat for dinner. I negotiate where I'm going to vacation, what I'm going to watch on television later, or what I'm going to do tomorrow. It's all up for negotiation, which is part of the gift of being a free man. Everything is on the table and I can do whatever really I want. It is my life. There's only one thing in my life I don't negotiate, uh, which is my sobriety. And if you're wondering, I mean, for me, what negotiation sounds like is it lives in my head. And it's like, do I want to do that? Do I need to do that? Is it necessary I do that? Is my sponsor right? All of these things that conspire to trip me up. It turns out that the enemy uh, lives in the mirror. And uh, I have always been the one that's going to get me drunk. It's not going to be my wife. It's not going to be a business reversal. It's not going to be a bad medical diagnosis. It's not going to be any of those things. It's going to be what lives between my ears when it's untreated is going to lead me back to that drink. And so this, this spirit of non-negotiation that we learn to develop about our recovery, where it's something that we do rather than talk about, it's something we don't have an opinion about. It's an action program. Thank goodness it's not a thinking program. I, I was reading something, I'm scrolling through my Facebook and somebody had a cute little meme there and it said, the true indicator of a man's thought life are his actions. And I laughed out loud. I thought that's the most inaccurate thing I have ever read in my life. Uh, be glad that my actions don't line up with my thinking uh, because very often my thinking is the biggest problem I have in my life. And as I said, I'm an alcoholic. I didn't mean to turn out an alcoholic. I didn't mean to break my mother's heart. I didn't mean to go to jail or crash cars or do any of the things that I did in my story. Now, we all don't do those things. We all drink very differently with different consequences. But I got to AA the old-fashioned way, uh, which was failure in drinking. You know what I mean? Uh, I, I got drunk for the first time when I was 17. And uh it's not my first drink. I've been drinking for a while, but I'm talking about where you get enough alcohol on board in one sitting to get there. Because alcohol, as much as anything, it transports me. It takes me to the land of I don't care. And I want to live there. I want my mail delivered there. I love the sense of ease and comfort that comes when I take a couple of drinks. I fell in love with the effect produced by alcohol when I was 17 and got drunk for the first time. Now, I've heard men and women tell their stories for almost 30 years, and we all tell the same story about getting drunk for the first time. You know, I felt better looking. I felt smarter, more confident, 10 feet tall, I funnier. And we tell this story as though it's delusion or fantasy, like it wasn't real. I'm not sure. Uh, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous promises me that every man and woman is blessed with certain skills, aptitudes, and abilities. We'll call these our gifts from God. This is your birthright. These are the things about ourselves uh, we're just good at, 
everybody's got a different set of gifts, but there's certain things everybody knows about themselves that they're just naturally good at. Some of us can sing. Some of us are funny. Some of us can do math. I don't know. We get these different gifts and we didn't have to work there given to you. What if those gifts, your birthright, always felt that they were there, but inaccessible. They were there, but you couldn't quite make contact with them. They were suspected rather than realized. Something in AA we like to call potential. And then one day something as powerful as alcohol came into my life. And let me tell you what, at 17 years old, it's not fantasy and it's not delusion. You put a couple of drinks in me at 17, <laughs> I am funnier and I am more confident and I am tougher and I am more of what I always hoped and dreamed I could be. That quiet suspect in the dark of my mind saying, I think I'm better than this. Suddenly, all that potential is realized and I love the way I feel. And it, it's not any more complicated than this. I like the way I feel with a couple of drinks in me better than I like the way I feel sober. And I didn't understand that that simple formula was part of the equation that doomed me. Now, the second part of the equation is if I could have stopped at a couple of drinks, I'd have never ended up in AA. But I got the physical aspect of this thing that seals my fate. You put alcohol of any type in my system, I'm in that bizarre 10% of the population. I process it differently. I don't know that I'm in that 10%. There's no warning. There's no big signal to me other than people from the beginning have observed my drinking and said, wow, you really like to drink. Wow, you can really put it away. I remember my grandfather saying to me when I was 19, you know, son, even a train stops sometimes. You know what I mean? There were those kind of clues, but that information came from outside of me. Inside of me, I want to be clear. My drinking may seem bizarre and confusing to people around me. It has never felt that way to me. It has always felt accurate and necessary. I have never taken a drink thinking it was the wrong amount at the wrong time for the wrong reason. It is like breathing for me. It is completely natural. But you put alcohol in me, I have an allergic reaction. We refer to as the phenomenon of craving. And once too many and a thousand's not enough. And if you have that and you don't know you have it, that's going to be a problem because you're drinking in ignorance, which means you're bringing a knife to a gunfight. You're overmatched. And I don't know it. And it's no big deal in the beginning. The early part of my drinking, that freedom from the bondage itself that it produced, this feeling I could be anything, go anywhere, accomplish anything. I'm not afraid anymore. I'm funnier, quicker, smarter, stronger, everything I hoped I'd be. I love the effect. I want to do as much of it as possible. And it seemed to be a solution because I'm going up the ladder in business. I'm making an obscene amount of money. I'm dating up a storm. I'm doing all these things that I couldn't seem to do sober. And now the world is opening up to me. And the, or my early 20s were the salad days of my drinking. No real trouble. You know, and I'm the classic guy. I have the three stages of drinking. Drinking with no trouble. Drinking with trouble. But a lot of fun. But there's trouble. And then the third stage, drinking, all trouble, right? <laughs> and, it, and the funny thing is, none of those stages got me to stop. I mean, because... When trouble comes into my story, I start going to jail. I start treating people in a manner I wasn't raised to treat them that way. 
I start blowing it at work. I start making mistakes in my career. I start blowing through relationships. I have my mother standing in front of me crying. Don't you know you're killing yourself? I'm waking up out of blackouts and jail cells and I don't know what I did. And I've got bloody knuckles and I'm thinking, oh my God, I hope I didn't hurt anybody. You know what I mean? These things are starting to happen, but that is not a big deal for a real alcoholic. Now, maybe a normal person, a heavy drinker even, that would get their attention. They'd say, oh my God, I don't want to live this way. But they don't have our secret weapon, justification and rationalization. And what that looks like for me is I was able to go to jail. And when I got released to face my family, who loves me the most and wants the best things in the world for me, I could look them in the eye with a smile on my face and laughingly say, well, <laughs> everybody goes to jail once in a while. <laughs> no, they don't. No, they don't. They really don't. I have been sober a long time. I have met a ridiculous amount of people in the real world that have never been to jail. I stopped asking. It was embarrassing. I realized that, you know, my alcoholic life seems the only normal one. If you don't believe me, I'll play a little game. How many people listening right now, listening right now, have ever been handcuffed? Just raise your hand if you've ever been handcuffed. <laughs> you know, everybody's hand goes up. And the funny thing is, you ask that question in Alcoholics Anonymous, and this is what we think. Well, that's a stupid question. Of course, I've been handcuffed. Never realizing that doesn't happen at the church knitting circle. That doesn't happen at the Rotary Club. That doesn't happen at the scout meeting. You know what I mean? My alcoholic life seems the only normal one. By repetition and exposure, I get used. At the end of my life, before Alcoholics Anonymous, I was living a manner of life that I had begun to accept the unacceptable. I was living in a way that if you put a normal, healthy, mature person into my life for half a day, they would go running down the street in terror. But for me, it'd become Tuesday, Friday night, Monday morning. It's astounding what we learn to accept through our active alcoholism the pain, the embarrassment, the failure, the hopelessness, the loneliness that are the building blocks to this crypt that we'll end up dying in. And we don't know it. And alcohol gets everything. You know, my alcoholism took everything from me you can possibly take from a human being. And it took, you know, the order of removal is the same for many of us. You know, the first thing it took, it took the things that money can buy, right? Took my career, took my car, took my house, took my future. And when it's done taking all that stuff, then it starts taking the stuff money can't buy, which turns out to be the valuable stuff. Hope, dreams, faith, a feeling like tomorrow's going to be okay. All that's in the rearview mirror. And when it took everything from me, you can possibly take from a human being. When the kind thing would have been to kill me. My alcoholism doesn't kill me. It turns its sights on my family. And now it's taken their hope, their faith, their trust, their future. It's taken all those things to my family because they're not sleeping at night. Because they got somebody that they love in their family that they're watching die and they know I'm beyond their reach. 
one of the big lies we tell ourselves when we come to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I certainly sang that old newcomer song, the only person I hurt was myself, never realizing the ripples that go out from the stone I drop in that pond of alcoholism that go out and touch everyone. And the strength of that ripple is the strongest close to the impact. So if you're my mother, my sister, my girlfriend, my wife, my employer, you're going to feel it more than anybody else because it seems to the degree that you love me is the degree that my alcoholism can hurt you. And I'm hurting everyone that has the misfortune of knowing me. And I start to do battle when I'm 25 years old with my alcoholism. And I wanna be clear, I didn't get sober till I was 31, but the battle began when I was 25. Up until then, I was living in ignorance. You know, and there's ignorance is bliss. You know, it may be a problem for them, but it's not a problem for me. You know what I mean? It's a problem for my employer, my landlord who's not getting his rent, my girlfriend I can't stay faithful to, but it's not a problem for me until it's a problem for me. At 25, it was. I had what the big book refers to as self-knowledge. And self-knowledge is not delivered by a family member or the court system. Self-knowledge is in your own voice, in your own head in the middle of the night saying, if you don't do something about your drinking, you're going to die slick. And it, the problem with self-knowledge and the reason it kills guys like me is it feels powerful. It feels like a solution, doesn't it? When you make a decision that you don't want to do this anymore, and this is no way to live, and you think to yourself, it's going to be different now. And you can vision, at least I could, I could envision that sober life and how good it was going to be. And I love quitting drinking. I must. I've done it a hundred times. You know what I mean? And I love day two. You know, day two, I can choke some food down. I'm starting to sleep again. And uh, something happens to me between day two and day five, you know, where it's almost like the color starts dripping out of the picture and my world starts getting gray. And I start thinking, man, you know, I might've made a rash decision with this quitting drinking thing. And then a little voice pops up in my head. And when it does, it says one word and one word only. And the word is forever. You're going to feel this way forever. And I don't understand with five days of sobriety, I've already entered into a period of negotiation with the first drink that it's not a matter now of if I'm going to drink, it's a matter of when I'm going to drink. How long can I hold on? How long can I take that pain? What they talk about in the doctor's opinion in the big book, when you separate a guy like me from alcohol, irritable, restless, and discontent, the biggest understatement in the big book, because it feels a lot worse than what it sounds like there. It sounds clinical there, irritable, restless, and discontent, but they don't feel that way. You know, I'm irritable. I want to hurt you. I'm restless. It doesn't matter where I am, what I'm doing. It's the wrong thing at the wrong place. And I'm discontent. And here's another definition for untreated, sober alcoholism. When we say discontent, what it means to me is I have a complete inability to experience joy when I'm sober. And I'll tell you what, you know what alcoholics are great at? We're better at this than anybody I've ever met, right? As a society, we are children of chaos. We do wrong better than anybody. We love it when it's wrong. Give us something to point to, you know, give me a busted relationship. 
Give me a bad medical diagnosis. Give me a reversal of fortune. Give me something that I can point to and go, that's why I'm all screwed up. You know what we hate? What makes a guy like me crazy with untreated alcoholism when I'm sober? When there's nothing wrong, but I feel like something's wrong. And I'll tell you what, that doesn't happen early in sobriety. I've experienced that nine years sober, 16 years sober, not all the time, but I've gotten off the beam. You know what I mean? I've become spiritually disconnected. I've gotten sloppy with my recovery. I've gone back into running the show, living on self-will run riot. And when those things happen, it doesn't mean my life falls apart. Untreated alcoholism doesn't get me back to the first drink that way because we do wrong well. It gets me back to the drink when I can't experience joy and I'm laying in bed at night and I'm nine years sober and I'm doing that sober math. You know what I mean? You're like, well, I don't know. I'm sober nine years. I go to a lot of meetings. I sponsor a lot of men. I'm well-respected in my AA community. I got a beautiful wife sleeping peacefully next to me. My business is doing great, making lots of money. Gee, if it was any better, I go in the backyard and hang myself and you can't figure out what's wrong. And once again, I fall in victim to this brainwashing that I went to and went through before I got to AA. And most people come to AA brainwashed, right? Because you had people in your life, like I had in my life, they said the same things to you. They said to me, right? You're a great guy. You got a lot of potential. You could be anything you wanted to be, go anywhere you wanted to go. All your dreams come true. If you just quit drinking, you'd be so happy, right? How come you separate me from alcohol? All my, you know, it doesn't matter what happens on the outside. I'm not happy. And that can happen years in the sobriety. We just can't figure out what the hell is wrong. And I come back to the third step in the big book where it says any life run by self-propulsion can hardly be considered a success. On that basis, we're almost always in collision with somebody or something. And the alcoholic is an extreme example of self-will run riot, though he usually doesn't think so. Man, if I'm ever going to make a sober t-shirt, that's my sober t-shirt, though he usually doesn't think so. My whole sobriety has been, I've been the last guy to know it. You know what I mean? You call your sponsor up, you go to him with some epiphany, Guess what I found out about myself? And he laughs. He goes, we've always known that about you. I'm always the last guy to know. I tried everything I could to quit drinking from the age of 25 to 31. I moved across the country. I moved back across the country. I changed jobs. I changed careers. I changed women. I changed clothes. I changed diet. I changed gyms. I changed everything I could thought. And my alcoholism got worse. My alcoholism takes everything from me and I try to make my life small so I can stay out of jail. I stop driving. I stop going out at night. And even with those barriers, those rules I put up to protect myself and defend my right to drink, my, still, my life still got worse. And I found myself at age 31, new in Alcoholics Anonymous because I didn't know what else to do. And I want to be very clear about this. I did not come to AA to get sober. Now, I know there's probably most of you are more noble than I am, and you actually came here to get sober. <laughs> but I had proven to myself that was not in the cards for me. It was never going to happen. I came here to buy some time, right? Put a couple of days together, figure out my next move. 
and figure out where I was going to run to next. Cause I'm a runner, man. That's what I do. You know, things get hot. I run, I run from relationships. I run from jobs. I run from towns. I reinvent myself. I build up a bright outlook for myself and then I tear it down again with my drinking. That's what I'd been doing for a decade. When I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was going to do it again. And I came to AA and uh, I'm a product of Alcoholics Anonymous uh, because I mean, I'm not going to have anything to do with the solution. I want to be very clear about that. I mean, the raw material that I bring to recovery. I mean, <laughs> what am I bringing to recovery, right? Deep resentment, old ideas, a belly full of fear, pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization, the wreckage of my past. There's not a lot of raw material to work with, right? And here's the good news about AA, and it always will be the good news. Alcoholics Anonymous does not work because of the alcoholic. It works in spite of him. In spite of all that crap I bring to AA, I will still get sober if I'm willing to take the actions that are suggested in Alcoholics Anonymous. In spite of my thinking, in spite of my old ideas, in spite of my fear, my prejudice, my anger, my resentments, there's something about the truth and the power that we find in AA that cuts through all of that stuff. It's been my experience. And when I say I'm a product, I mean this. It's my second night in Alcoholics Anonymous. I went to the six o'clock meeting. It ended at 7.30. I'm waiting for the eight o'clock meeting to start. I'm coming up on 48 hours without a drink of alcohol. And I looked around that clubhouse I was in, in Simi Valley, California. And I looked at the people in AA. They didn't look like me. Because that night, I did not look the way I look today, right? I got dirty hair down the middle of my back and it's filthy. I don't, I don't shower anymore. I got a full beard with food stuck in it. I'm wearing my sunglasses at night because that's what scared tough guys do. I got my arms folded around my chest, rocking back and forth, daring you to come talk to me. And every molecule in my body is screaming, let's go get a drink because I'm physically addicted to alcohol and I'm coming up on two days without a drink and I'm coming out of my skin and my head starts talking to me. I love it when the big book says the main problem of the alcoholic resides in his mind rather than his body. Boy, ain't that true. Because here I am in the middle of an AA clubhouse surrounded by people that are sober, that have had the gift. And here's what my head told me. They're not like you. They don't want you here. You need to go get a drink. And I'm leaving AA to go get drunk on my second night. And I'm not leaving because AA doesn't work or God doesn't exist or the steps aren't a miracle. I'm leaving AA to get drunk because I passed into a region where there's no return through human aid. You see, I've lost the power of choice where drink is concerned. I have to go get drunk. It's not a decision. And so I'm going to go get drunk and it's going to cost me everything. It's going to cost me where I'm living. It's going to cost me my last shot at surprise. It's probably going to cost me my life, which is a small price to pay if I can make the madness in my head stop for a couple of hours. And I've always been willing to pay that price just to make my head shut up. And I caught a break because over in the corner were two good members of Alcoholics Anonymous. And although it's the most important moment of my life, whether I live or die will be decided in the next few minutes. For Mark and Lou, it was Tuesday, you know what I mean? And these guys were where they were every Tuesday night between the six o'clock and the eight o'clock meeting at the Simi Valley Alano Club. They hung out together, waiting for the meeting to start, drinking that AA coffee, telling those AA war stories, but most importantly, 
they had their eyes on the door and they had their eyes on the room. And these were the kind of guys that went to meetings looking for men to 12 step. And uh, they did something that I think is the most important thing we'll ever do in a meeting, right? These two good men walked 30 feet across an AA clubhouse to cordially welcome a man who was dying from alcoholism to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And they did it in a kind, unassuming way that we're taught to do it. They just introduced themselves. Hi, I'm Lou. This is Mark. We don't think we've met you. Why don't you come sit with us? And my journey began. And I sat down with Lou and Mark and Lou looked at me in the most nonchalant manner and said, by the way, Mark will be your sponsor. You need one of those. Then he got up and walked away. I had no idea what that meant. And it's not important, is it? Because they knew what it meant. And it, in that moment, my life changed. Now, if you had told me you just had the most important experience of your life, I would have said, what happened? I missed it. But here's what happened. I got an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous as a sponsor, which means what? I'll be active if I'm willing to have it. He's active with his step work and he's in the big book, which means I'll be active with my step work and in the big book if I'm willing to have it. He has commitments in AA, things that tie him to the program, which means I'll have those commitments if I'm willing to have it. He's got a thousand friends, a thousand. He knows all of you, right? Which means I'll have a thousand friends. Because I didn't know when you get a sponsor, you inherit all their friends, right? Which when you're new, I want to be, it does not feel like an asset. You know what it feels like? It's suddenly there's a bunch of strangers up in your business and you can't figure out why you're so damn entertaining, right? And uh, But think of it this way. I'm at the low point of my existence. I burned every bridge and suddenly I meet this strange new crowd at AA. And in a very short amount of time, you find out everything about me, good and bad. Yet you still love me, accept me, and encourage me. Where are you going to get that on the planet if you're a drunk? Where are you going to find that kind of compassion? The only place I've ever seen it, one drunk for another, man. The love we have for each other is an Alcoholics Anonymous. And suddenly, all the pieces were in place for a new life to start. And my sponsor, Mark, took me through all three sides of the triangle simultaneously, unity, service, and recovery, and never told me he was doing that because he used the ancient spiritual principle of the invitation in order to resurrect and save another man's life. Cause that's what we do in AA. We invite, we don't dominate. We don't order around. We're shoulder to shoulder with the new man or the new woman. Right. And we invite them into our already vibrant AA life. And he invited me into his life and he did it in a kind way, which left me with some dignity and some self-esteem. He never told me to do anything. He invited me to join him in what he was doing because I'd rather, you know, look at a sunset than listen to a sermon. He wasn't long on talk, but he was big on action. And he'd say, Don, why don't you show up early tomorrow and help me set up this meeting? I could really use your help. And I think, wow, he needs my help. And I'd show up early and we'd set up some stupid meeting. And then he'd shake my hand and thank me. I can't tell you how much that meant to me. When you're at the low point of your existence and you think you stayed in the water too long and you had a shot at a good life once, but that's in the rearview mirror. And somebody treats you with the currency that we spend with in AA. They treat you with that kindness and they see you and they tell you you matter and they tell you you're needed. It gives me a little hope. It helps me to stand a little bit straighter. It helps me to think that maybe, maybe, I got a little strength in me yet 
maybe it's not over. And my life is horrible. I'm hopelessly in debt. I haven't worked in a year. I don't have a car. I'm living at my sister's house at age 31 because that's where the, you know, the tough go when the going gets tough. We go home. I mean, my life is terrible. And my sponsor, God bless him, never told me different. He never said, oh, there, there, little alcoholic. It'll be okay. God loves you. You know what he said? Yeah, you're right, Don. Your life sucks. Woo! You got a terrible life. He said, Don, I write a gratitude list every night and you're on it. And I write, thank you, God, for not making me Don. And he'd laugh and he'd laugh and he'd laugh. And I would think to him, I'm like, that's not funny. But I know what he was doing today, man, because there's a propulsion system for untreated alcoholism. It's in the big book right before the third step. It says we are driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-seeking, self-delusion, and self-pity. And any one of those things can kill a drunk like me. You put them together, it's a deadly cocktail. And in Alcoholics Anonymous, we will not tolerate self-pity. Not because we don't have compassion. My God, we are so compassionate and so loving. But we know self-pity kills drunks, right? Pour me, pour me, pour me another drink. And man, we will laugh that stuff out of the room. We will laugh. They laughed at my problems till I learned to laugh at them and realize that they were temporary if I took action. And my sponsor, God, he found out I owe the Internal Revenue Service like $80,000, man, which is, you know, look, you got a half a million in the bank, 80 grand's not a big deal, write the check. But if you haven't worked in a year and you owe who knows how much to everybody else, and then you go back to work early in sobriety and you're making like eight bucks an hour with taxes taken out, and you start paying back the IRS a hundred bucks a month, and you write that first check and you think, oh, good, 79900 to go. You know it's never going to be okay. And I felt so bad about that debt. Not my sponsor. He put it in the service immediately in Alcoholics Anonymous. Because whatever you bring, we'll use it for service, right? If any new guy made the mistake of complaining about his little $1,000 IRS debt to my sponsor, my sponsor would interrupt and go, hold that thought, Jimmy. And then he'd call me, hey, Don, you got a minute? And I'd walk over all innocently and he'd say, Don, tell Jimmy how much you owe the IRS. And I'd look at Jimmy and I'd say, I owe the IRS $80,000. And Jimmy would go, Jesus. And my sponsor would laugh and Jimmy would feel better. And my sponsor would have a good laugh. And I learned to laugh at my problems. And by staying sober and taking direction from a sponsor, you learn, you start to find out that all those societal problems that a lot of us come here with, the debt, the destroyed relationships, the legal troubles, that's not the hard stuff. Turns out the hard stuff is staying sober one day at a time. And I showed up in those courtrooms and I paid back that money and I did all the stuff that you have to do if you're actually working the steps and you get to that amends process in steps eight and nine, you'll get right with the world. But it's a funny thing about that too. You know, in the second step in the chapter, we agnostics, it makes that bold statement, right? God is everything or else he's nothing, right? And I don't, man, I don't know about anybody else, but here's my experience. The minute I started paying back the money, I started getting better jobs, right? You know, I started making more money. Now, I want to be clear, I didn't have more money because it was all going for amends. My sponsor used to laugh at me and go, oh, Don, don't worry about it. They don't want your money. And I'd say, they don't? He goes, no, they want their money, 
give them their money. And so I'm paying back everybody and their brother, you know what I mean? And it's like, I'd ask my sponsor, when am I going to feel okay about this? Cause I didn't want to do any of it. Every check I wrote to whoever I wrote it to, I was bitter about it and mad at myself. Like I did this to me. Right. He said, I don't know, Don someday. And then you get that day. And I had that day, man, I called up the IRS and I've been paying them back for years. And I called them up just to see what the balance was on my debt. And they said, it's the funniest thing, Don, you actually overpaid. Uh, you gave us 400 bucks too much. Would you like us to send you a check? Now, for five years, I've been sending the IRS every spare nickel I had. And if you've gone through that, you know what your answer is. Yeah, you bet your ass you're gonna send me a check. I called my sponsor up and I said, Remember when you told me I'd feel better about this debt one day? He said, yeah. I go, today's the day. And some of our amends are like that. You know when you're going to feel better about it? When it's complete and not until. And so all these things have happened to me in the sobriety. I've met a beautiful woman in sobriety, good member of Alcoholics Anonymous, the lovely Eileen. And we just celebrated in June. We celebrated 25 years of, you know, of marriage, sober marriage, man. We've both stayed sober and active in the program the whole time. Sometimes it works. I'm blessed with that. You know, I've had a nice career. I live in a beautiful place, but you know, I've had every blessing that you can possibly have during this period. But, you know, but because it's a full life experience, I have, I've had every challenge, right? I've had money problems and sex problems and health problems and marriage problems, every kind of problem that you can have. I've had to, because that's what being human's about. It's not about not making mistakes. It's about not defending those mistakes. But through it all, good and bad, I've always come to Alcoholics Anonymous. You know what I mean? I've always come to you guys. And it turns out by being honest with you, by being transparent, by willing to look bad when my ego didn't want me to let you know what was really going on with me. By, by my willingness to do that, you were able to help me. You know, you can't help me if there's nothing wrong with me. And I've never brought a problem to God that I don't have. And so it seems that this important, this idea of powerlessness, that in the first step for me was so easy. It was so easy to give up the alcohol and give up the other substances and put that under the classification of powerlessness. That was no big deal. And it seems that for the last 29 years, what I've been doing is just increasing the list of all the things I'm powerless over. Because one by one, you're going to have to turn them in, in my experience. You don't want to. I've never done it easily, but I had to turn in business. I had to turn in my marriage. I had to turn in my sex life. I had to turn in my opinions. I had to turn in my judgment. Slowly, over time, you start to realize you're powerless. And that's over everything. But the good news is in the book, it's not hidden. We read it tonight. There is one who has all power. That one is God. May you find him now. My God, they read that at my first meeting and they read it today. How long did I ignore it? How long did I ignore the fact that when the book said lack of power is my dilemma, I have to find a power by which I can live and it has to be a power greater than myself, obviously. How long did I ignore that? And I wasted a lot of time in Alcoholics Anonymous trying to fix myself. Isn't that something? And so I haven't been through the steps once or twice or three times. The steps are not built in an upward trajectory. They're actually built in a circle. They never end. It's like a conveyor belt of daily living. 
Because you see, when I get sober, you're real big on saying this. It's one day at a time, kid. It's one day at a time, which when you're new, it means this and nothing more. If you go to bed tonight and you're sober, you've had a successful day in Alcoholics Anonymous, regardless of what anybody says to you or what your head tells you. That must be the measuring stick. But after you've been here a while, one day at a time, it's much more powerful. Because I can have the most spiritual day in the world. You know what I mean? I can look at my day at the end of my day, 11-step review, and I can go, wow, I had a pretty good day. Close to God all day. Wasn't thinking about myself most of the time. I don't have any secrets. Don't have any lies I got to clean up. Not keeping anything to myself. Didn't miss any opportunities to be a service. And that's a good thing. It's a good spiritual day. But it's worthless tomorrow. Because it appears <laughs> that the spiritual structures I build every day are on a beach and they're made out of sand. You know what I mean? And at night, God sends the waves in. And you get up in the morning and it's all clear and you got to start building again. And so I get up in the morning and I start using the tools that you told me to use, right? Prayer and meditation. And what it is so I misunderstood that. I thought I was supposed to like get spiritual. That's not what I'm doing. I'm getting ready to go serve. Isn't that something? I'm getting ready to go serve others. And I don't want to do it <laughs> because I'm selfish and I'm self-centered. So I have to pray and meditate in the morning. And it's so funny. I wake up every day of my life a little bit blue, not depressed. I won't say depressed. That insults people that have actual depression. I don't. I'm just self-centered, right? I wake up a little bit blue, which is funny because the first direction and the 11th step in the big book, very first one is we ask God to direct our thinking, that our thoughts be divorced from self-seeking, self-pitying you know, self motives. How did they know? Because they're alcoholics. Bill Wilson was an alcoholic. He woke up a little blue too. So what I do in the morning is I start praying for God to direct my thinking, get me off of me so I can be of some earthly good. Let me get an idea of what I look like if I had a relationship with this power, if I believed in this power, if I wanted to serve, what does that guy look like? And I meditate on what that guy looks like. Now go do it. And you see, that's the easy part. That's the fun part, right? There's no trouble there. I've never gotten any trouble on my knees next to my bed praying to God. You know what I mean? That's not where my life has lived. And how many days did I feel all spiritual after prayer and meditation? I go out the front door into the real world, and it's like there's a guillotine at my front door that cuts my conscious contact, right? go out in the world, run on self-will all day in collision with everybody and everything. Then go to a meeting at night, get called on, sound spiritual while you're dying inside, go home and, <laughs> you know, try to do better. I mean, how many days? Plenty, right? So how can I turn my day into what happens in the morning? I can't live my whole day in that 15 minutes to 40 minutes of prayer meditation I do every morning. I can't live my whole day there. And I can't seem to hold on to that conscious contact throughout my day based on what I do in the morning, no matter how good it is. And so what I've learned to do is create two things. I've been taught in AA by great, great men, great teachers, where God is. And he said that God lives in the pause. That thing we talk about in the 11th step, that we pause when doubtful or agitated. God lives in the pause. And his language is silence. So what I have to do throughout my day, simple but not easy, is create pause 
and create silence. And if I can do that, I can connect with God. How do I remember to do that? Well, I, for me, I've got a lot of simple tricks, man. I go to work every day, right? There's, I have a position of authority. I'm in charge of a lot of guys, so to speak, right? And these guys count on me, right? They count on me and I count on them. And every day I go to work and they're waiting for me. You know what I mean? With all those questions, Don, Don, Don. And if I'm not spiritually fit, I could walk in and go, do you see the briefcase in my hand? Would it be okay if I got to my desk, maybe had a cup of coffee before I drop everything and work on your problem? Would that be okay? And for some reason that hurts people's feelings, right? So I've learned to shut off the rig and knock it out of the truck until I pray, until I meditate. It only takes like a minute. And I close my eyes and I say some variation, the same prayer every day at work. God, there's men in there and they're a blessing in my life and my job is to be a service to them. Get me out of the way. Give me a heart to feel and eyes to see. Let me put their problems ahead of mine. Let me remember this is all a gift. And then I get quiet and I just have a mental picture of what I look like trying to be helpful. And when I'm done with that, 60 seconds, I can get out of that truck and walk into that office and my whole attitude's different. I'm like, what do we got going on today, guys? Come on, let's get it taken care of. And I'm kind and I'm helpful and they feel good and we feel connected and it builds unity. And that's not me, that's God. I come home at night and I've been out in the real world, you know, a real job, real challenges, slaying dragons. You know what I mean? And I come home to a home where there's a woman in that house and there's a heart in that woman. And I love that heart. And that's my wife, Eileen. But that doesn't help me when I'm selfish and self-centered, right? Because if I'm not spiritually fit, I'll walk in the house and you know, she's been waiting all day to talk to me because she loves me. And she always wants to talk to me about what? I don't know, but she's always got something to talk about. And I'll walk in and she'll be like, she'll start talking and I'll say, honey, I just walked in. I don't even have my boots off yet. Can you give me five minutes? And then I'll just stop and I'll listen to you, but I need them. And for some reason, that hurts her feelings. So I've learned to like shut down the truck. Don't get out. Say that quick prayer. God, there's a woman in that house and she's a gift in my life. And my job is to be a service to her. Give me a heart to feel and eyes to see. Let me put her needs ahead of my own. And then I, I meditate on what that guy looks like. And now I can walk in the house and I can find my wife and I can ask her about her day and what I can do to make her day easier. And tell me what happened today, baby. Tell me everything, right? And that big imposition in my life, that big inconvenience, turns out all she wanted me was five or 10 minutes, five or 10 minutes to change the whole nature of what happens in my home. I go to AA at night, right? And I got no business going to AA at night because I'm not spiritually fit. I got the whole world hanging over me. How many times have I showed up at a meeting with my money problems, my business problems, my marriage problems, and my world problems hanging all over me? I got no business going in there. I'm going to walk right by the new guy, aren't I? Walk right by the new guy. Go get a cup of coffee. Go talk to my AA buddies. Download a little bit. You know, connect with my friends. And then maybe if there's time left, I'll talk to a new guy. And I got no business bringing that selfish attitude into AA, but I've been guilty of it. I have been guilty of it. So I don't get out of the truck. I sit in the parking lot and I say, God, I'm at AA right now. It's just another night in AA for me. Another night of an undeserved gift. But there could be men here. This could be the most important moment of my, of their life. And I don't want to miss it. Give me a heart to feel and eyes to see. Get me off of me. Let me put their needs first. And now I'm ready to go to AA. 
and I shake hands with everybody there and I go say hi and I look for the guys I don't know and I introduce myself because that's what you did for me. And then I ask, um, what, you know, do you know, hey, come with me. Let me introduce you to some of the guys. And I'm doing what we're supposed to do in AA. And I'm telling you, that's God. That's not me. And so we have this wonderful opportunity. And I don't think that there's anything more important than, you know, what do we get to do as AA members besides stay sober and live a good, productive, purposeful life? Think about this. We get a front row seat to watch and witness the master at work, a front row seat to see our creator work in the lives of others, to watch the resurrection in another human being, soul, spirit, and mind. And I've never, ever seen God as clearly as when I'm watching what he does with you. Because I can't see myself clearly. But God, when I watch him work in your life, no more evidence is needed. You see, I'm better when I'm with you. I used to wonder why I felt better when I was with my fellows in A. Why I'd go to a meeting and I'd be in this, you know, my head's all screwed up. I'm thinking about myself way too much. I walk out of that same meeting an hour and a half later, two hours later, and I feel so much better. My problems haven't been solved. They just don't bother me anymore. And I go, what the hell happens in an AA meeting that causes that? And I tried to figure it out. Is it the format? No, same old format. Is it the members? No, same stuff I always hear in AA. What is it? And then one day I'm reading a book with this new guy and we're we agnostics. And we're reading that part where it says deep down inside every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God, right? We're reading that. And he's having problems with the fundamental idea. And I said, well, think of it this way. Think of it that you everybody's got a little light inside them, and that's God's light. We all have it. Whether we know it or not, we all have it. And, you know, he kind of got into that. He said, yeah, that makes sense to me. And later on, I'm thinking about that, God's light. And I thought about when I'm out there in the world, I have God's light every moment of my day. I move through the world with God's light. But I have just what every human being has. But then I come to AA, and I'm in a room. And guess what? You're all there and you all bring your light. And how many times have we sat in an AA meeting? And it's not what's being said and it's not what's going on. It's a feeling. It's not a thought. It's a feeling. I can feel it in the room, that energy, that presence, because you all bring your God and you bring that light. And sometimes it's so bright, I can barely see. And I have felt it for over 29 years, which is why I keep coming back. I love what I'm getting and I want more. And my prayer is always the same. I hope we stay sober forever because it's certainly worth it. Thanks for listening. Hey, Don, 